0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match, limited by state law.
1: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
2: Oh uh, wait, you're listening.
3: <laughs> okay.
4: All right. Okay. All
5: right.
3: <clears throat> you're you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Lab.
5: Radio Lab from WNYC. See?
1: Yep.
3: Hello, I'm Akio Morita, and I have been Sony's chairman and chief executive officer for the last 10 years. Before handing you over to our narrator, I would like to offer. Human beings use or abuse technologies, and it is in our mind and hearts that the future will be decided. And now, here is our narrator telling my story and that of tips like this one.
5: I'm Simon Adler. And I'm Jad Abumrad. This is Radio
4: Lab. It, truth be told, I don't even know if this is the way to start, but let's just jump in, I guess. Yeah, take it for a spin. All right, so I've got a short story for you about a piece of technology we don't think about much today and how one morning it tore a small hole in the time-space continuum.
3: According to the memoir,
4: this is Noriko Ishigaki. And whose memoir are you reading from there?
3: Yasuo Kuroki.
4: Okay, she's a Japanese-to-English translator as well as a, a longtime friend. And she says that on the morning of June 22nd, 1979, in Yoyogi Park...
3: One of the biggest parks in Tokyo, magazine reporters and editors are gathered...
4: ...maybe a dozen or so alongside some uh, some press people uh, from the Sony Corporation. Okay. And Sony has gathered this gaggle of journalists there... To sort of unveil this new product for them—a
3: product called
4: Walkman—the Sony Walkman. Oh yes. Now these reporters had very little idea what exactly to expect, or even what this Walkman was,
3: until the product leader carefully hands each reporter the Walkman
4: with a cassette in inside it already. Okay. Did you have a Walkman, Chad?
5: Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. It was blue steel. None of this plastic shit. (laughs) Yes. I remember the way that you would put the cassette in and then click it shut. And there was something about that tactile sound. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: Anyhow, so these reporters put on these orange headphones.
3: And then the event organizer says, please press the play button. One, two, three, go.
4: And... Oh. (laughs) <laughs> There's this sound blasting into their ears, and this voice welcoming them. And the voice says to them, Look out into the park. And they see that they are not the only ones listening to a walk. There are dozens of other folks with orange headphones on, moving through the park. Kids on roller skates,
3: college students jogging, women exercising,
4: people skateboarding, even a Buddhist monk. Like the the scene that you and I see every day walking down the streets. Uh, You know, people in their own little world listening to whatever they want to. Yeah. This is the first time anyone had ever seen that.
5: Amazing. Amazing.
4: And of course, if they took their headphones off, they'd rejoin our shared world, hearing the din of the park and the city around them. But then, when they put them back on... They'd be back in their own little world. Headphones off. Collective reality. Headphones on. Whatever personal reality, whatever mood they'd chosen for themselves. Oh, my God. Uh, Totally. And maybe you can communicate this better than me because you lived it. But, like, this was all so new. Like, most of these people had probably never worn headphones before. They've never had stuff pumped directly into their ears. They've never listened to something outside before, short of a transistor radio or maybe a boombox. And
5: they're now doing it all together but by themselves. People don't really understand what what a big deal the Walkman was. Like, remember when uh, Steve Jobs did the iPhone and everyone was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Yep, yep. This was like that times a thousand. You'd go that far. No, really. Like, to go from a world where you had to sit on your ass and listen to music in a specific place to suddenly you could walk, like literally walk and have the music playing just for you, thereby soundtracking your journey. You know, (laughs) I was like, this is a movie and I am the protagonist. This is amazing. Like it was, it was, it was amazing.
4: Well, as amazing and liberating as it was, it was also controversial. Almost immediately, folks were hollering that this personalized, siloed, intimate consumption of media was going to end community, if not society, as we knew it.
5: It's like uh, it's like uh, the same conversations we're having now about Twitter and Facebook.
4: Oh, yeah. And so, I don't know, in more ways than one, I think what Sony unintentionally gave those reporters that morning was a glimpse into the future.
1: I, I don't know whether it's good for the people or bad for the people. But uh, at least we gave people some joy of
6: enjoying the music.
4: Now, I've spent the last year listening to, thinking about, and researching the object powering those Sony Walkmans, the cassette tape. And uh, what I've learned is that This object, this little piece of plastic, changed the world. It brought down governments, collapsed space and time, and remade how we say those three simple words, I love you. So, for the next five weeks, I've got a mixtape of stories for you. A mixtape that'll take us to China, Vietnam, South Sudan, Czechoslovakia, 1940s America, exploring this object's impact and how, believe it or not, we're still really living in a cassette world. I'm Simon Adler, and this is Mixtape.
5: Okay, well, uh, Simon, why don't you just take it from here? I'll just... uh... Just excuse myself. and Go listen to my Walkman <laughs> in the kitchen.
4: All right, then. So here we go.
5: Hi, I'm Steve Moore, And in this tape, I'm going to pass on as much knowledge as possible about playing rock and roll. Blah, blah, blah.
7: As you sing, you will feel more and more freedom.
5: Here it is.
4: We're kicking off in Hangzhou, China, with this guy. <laughs>
6: 沒關係,
8: 沒關係.
4: This is Hao Fang, Hao Fang. <laughs> alongside our interpreter and really a co-reporter in China, who, for political reasons, has asked to remain anonymous. Anyhow, these days, (laughs) Hao Fong writes about music for a living. But he says, you know, back when he was a kid... He had no idea that job even existed.
8: He was born in 1963 in this very small town called Qianjiang.
6: Very small.
8: The kind of place where you'd walk for 10 minutes and be on the outskirts already,
4: surrounded by mountains, lush countryside, and super isolated. I mean, the best source of reading material he had was uh, at the time people would use old newspaper as as wallpaper. Right, like you want to make it look good. And so when Hao would go over to his neighbors' houses...
8: He would just dash to the wall and start reading. Wow. Because <laughs> there's so little for him to read.
4: But well, Hao was hungry for any information about the outside world, his real love was... Music.
8: Right. His mom worked in this art and dance troupe, an organization under China's military, creating music and choreography.
9: What we nowadays refer to as red songs or yang xi, revolutionary operas.
4: This is historian and scholar Mabu.
9: I'm a music fan. I also write about music.
4: And he says these operas were really a tool of the government.
9: I mean, of course, I didn't live through that time, but they were propaganda.
4: I mean, campy, over the top productions filled with dolled up Chinese soldiers.
8: Really pretty girls, long legs,
4: determined peasants, corrupt businessmen. And in them, the peasants seem to always win and the capitalists get what they deserve. And I mean, how love this stuff!
8: I remember watching my mom sing, and I would join. It was simply something that made me happy.
4: But there, there was very little for him to listen to
9: because actually, these revolutionary operas—they were the the only officially sanctioned style of music, and nationwide, there there were only eight that are that people could listen to. So there were um, only
4: eight operas that that was the
9: the yeah yeah eight
4: eight operas. virtually everything else was illegal. Does that mean that if I turned on the radio in China in let's say nineteen seventy four, I would be hearing one of those operas being played?
9: The answer is yes, but then back in those years, it's not that common for a person to turn on the radio um it's It's more about loudspeakers which was, the, the, I guess, the most common way to, to listen to music.
4: So you don't even tune into them. They're blasted to you through loudspeakers. <laughs>
8: it might sound unbelievable to you, but that's how it was back then.
4: And for how it pretty much stayed that way for years. And years. And years. But then... A decade or so later... So, the year is
8: 1948.
4: Uh, wait, 1984? Sorry,
8: what did I say? 48. Oh, God.
4: <laughs> <laughs> fine.
8: This is what happened when you worked a 10-hour day. Totally, absolutely um, fine. Sorry, let me rewind. So, Yeah. The year was
6: 1984.
4: <laughs>
8: How just graduated from college. He went to Wuhan, Wuhan, the, where the virus started.
4: During the day, Hao would venture out into Wuhan to explore his new home.
8: So he was just like wandering the city, looking for stuff to do with his roommates. And they just happened to stumble across this theater-like place.
4: Little hole in the wall showing uh, bootleg movies with a curtain for a door. He
8: opened the curtain and walked in and...
4: There were 20 or so people there, a uh, small illuminated screen up at the front. And he had to really squint uh, through all the cigarette smoke to to make out the screen.
8: But the first thing he noticed was the smell.
4: And not just from the cigarettes. People's oily,
8: oily hair. Feet. Oh. Was- Sorry, you told me to describe as vividly as I could. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
4: yeah, you did it. Yep. Anyhow, the movie they were showing was an illegal bootleg copy of Apocalypse Now. And he'd never seen anything like it. The realism, the violence the explosive budget. Well done, Hawks, well done. But what hit him hardest was not those smells or those images on the screen, but what was coming out of the speakers.
8: Classic scene in the movie where um, uh, The Doors, The End, was played. Morrison started to sing.
6: This is an... In- Build it for a friend to
8: He remembers being frozen. He had goosebumps all over him.
1: It was like
6: magic. And so, yeah, Hao
8: was just
7: totally.
8: Um, touched by the the music.
4: He'd never heard such a simple yet powerful arrangement. Basically never heard a song about death. Never imagined music could be so emotionally complicated and layered.
8: I think it's just
4: um, (laughs) love
8: at the first sight really.
4: And he needed more of it. But
8: there was nothing, nothing at all.
4: I mean, China was opening up a bit at the time, letting some Western music in, but there was an actual committee that would handpick which songs. And what they were letting in, like John Denver, The Carpenters...
8: Yeah, very limited songs Only really, really popular stuff. It's
4: pretty harmless. And as for the more complicated, subversive music coming out of the West at that time, like, no one had legal access to it. But there was a group of people in China who, like Hao, had gotten at least a little taste of that larger musical world.
1: University students. Right, right, right. Students at the university, they were some of the few people who had connections to the foreign community. This is Kaiser Gould. I am a podcaster. I run the Sinica podcast on SubChina.
4: He's also a musician, was born to Chinese immigrant parents, and came of age in Tucson, Arizona.
1: Which is why I talk the way I do. Everyone thinks I sound like I'm from Southern
4: California or something, but it's it's the Tucson in me. He was living and studying in China in the late 80s. And he says exchange students like him, English teachers, uh, were, were giving Western music, to these students. And they were beginning to express themselves through it.
1: The question of the day, are events in China out of control? For the second day in a row, a million demonstrators have filled the streets of Beijing and there have been demonstrations for democracy. You know, the, the, the 89 protests started happening. The Tiananmen Square protests.
4: Kaiser uh, actually attended these protests.
1: And so, you know, students had taken over the entire center of the city.
9: It is very
8: important to let the people in the world to know the situation
4: in China. These students in Beijing were demanding democracy, uh, freedom of expression, freedom of access to the outside world. But also, Kaiser told me, uh, they were doing this thing that doesn't really get talked about much. He said that right there in the heart of the demonstrations.
1: People would just sort of set up stacks of PA and then they'd have, you know, all the bands at the time just playing. You know what? Long into the, the night, and you know people were in the mood to party.
9: In the history of communist China, there has never been anything like this.
4: Well, this is a version of of the protests that I haven't heard. You uh, we only ever hear about or talk about sort of the the end of them, I suppose. Right,
1: right. We don't talk about the seven weeks of just love and, and anarchy. It was wonderful. <laughs> Some of the happiest days I can remember.
4: Peace, love, rock and roll, and yes, John Denver's Country Roads. But then, on the morning of June seventh.
1: I uh turned the television
4: on Kaiser had left Beijing and was several days behind the news
0: and the
1: very first image I see is of a the charred body of a of a copper soldier hanging from a bridge
4: the protests turned violent
1: but of course they they only showed you know the 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 violence that had been perpetrated on, you know, on the military and law enforcement, and there was some, of course, but you know, they didn't show all. You know, the, the students or the, the workers who had been shot.
6: Killings in and around Tiananmen Square.
1: As the
4: army units approached, they were firing into side streets, killing and injuring of unarmed men, women, and children.
9: The bicycle rickshaws scooped up the engine. The air was filled
4: with shouts of stop killing. Their own army was firing wildly at them. Tell the world, they said to us. The number of killed is not well known, but estimates put it in at least the hundreds. The
1: Chinese Red Cross says at least 2,600 people were killed
4: some going up to as many as 3,000.
1: students claim thousands of others were wounded.
4: Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's really remarkable. Crazy. Now, the chilling effect Tiananmen had on China really can't be overstated. And music got caught up in all this, too.
7: Of course, after the crackdown... Just immediately, you really cannot listen to popular music from United States or England. This is Wen Hua Xie.
4: I'm from original from China. He was willing to talk to us about this because today he lives in Boston, where he teaches at the University of Massachusetts.
7: During the crackdown, I, I was quite young, how, how to say it's in ninth grade. But I remember so vividly, Listening to uh, shortwave radio, mostly
4: Voice of America, VOA,
7: V-O-A learning English, and then Hi, this is V-O-A. Music to our l- listen to some like, popular songs. But after Tiananmen, suddenly those are being removed. They produce a noise to jam that signals. So you cannot hear anymore. It's impossible. Uh, so uh, you feel the air is really exhausted because of the, because there's no outside of the uh, possibilities.
9: But
4: just a few short years later, the outside came flooding in. In pretty much the most unexpected way I can think of. Somewhere
8: in the early 90s, uh, it was spring. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in Wuhan Xi'an.
4: Again, music critic Hao Fang.
8: He was on a business trip. He was ma- meeting a friend, but the friend wasn't there and he was early and he heard... Some rock music being
4: played. He's like, where is that coming from?
8: So he just followed the music.
4: Down the street and around the corner. And he
8: saw this store and pretty much a hole in the wall. He stepped in and he was just... Caught off guard completely. It was a store filled with tapes.
4: More than he'd ever seen in his life.
8: Yeah, Walter Walker said hundreds, <laughs> hundreds of hundreds of tapes.
4: And he's like, what the hell is this place? It
8: will be like turning around, and there is Jefferson's airplane.
4: Michael Jackson,
6: I was president.
8: Turns around, and there's like Bob
6: Dylan. And then
8: he turns around, there's Yes Band and really niche ones.
6: Like, is this for real? It, it
8: was everything you ever dream of in that tiny store. —
4: And it was cheap. —
8: So he thought this is his only chance to own these tapes. And so, yeah, he grabbed all these
4: albums. — As many as he could carry. —
8: This big plastic bag with like 20-something tapes. —
4: He checked out and began
9: inspecting his treasures.
8: One by one, he started, like, examining them, analyzing and comparing.
4: And he saw that each of them had been cut through the jewel case and into the bottom of the cassette. The cut was about the width of a quarter. And an intro so deep. And he
8: was wondering, you know, like, why is there some marks on these tapes? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, what happened to them? I mean, he didn't know, but he was encountering DACO.
9: DACO. DACO
8: cassettes. Daco, DACO tapes. He didn't know where they came from. He doesn't know there's going to be more access to
4: daco. And
8: he didn't know it was going to be a national scene.
4: He didn't know these daco tapes were about to change how he and millions of others in China thought about music. All Hao knew at the time was that he wanted more. We'll get to that right after a quick break.
0: This is Ronia from Ypsilanti, Michigan. Mixtape, a special series from Radiolab, is supported in part by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative, the Shanahan Family Charitable Foundation, and the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation.
5: This concludes Side 1. Turn your
1: cassette over to begin Side 2.
0: Radiolab is supported by BetterHelp. Whether it's already 2 a.m. on a fun night out, graduation time, a new year, we can find ourselves wishing we had more time, wondering where it all went. But there's a question. If we were magically given that time back, what would we do with it? Perhaps you'd spend more time with a friend that you've lost touch with or petting your dog or just noticing the sweetness of doing nothing. The best way to let those special things into your life is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority going forward. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Radiolab today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Radiolab.
1: Music helps us celebrate, contemplate, cope, and connect. And we've got the stories to prove it. Join me, Terrence McKnight, for the new season of The Open Ears Project, a podcast in which people tell us about the piece of classical music that has meant the most to them. That music might even wind up being meaningful for you. The Open Ears Project. Listen now wherever
5: you get podcasts. Another way you can improve playing rock and roll Is uh, absorb as much outside knowledge and information as you can Even if it's a simple kind of thing like Or very undesirable noises Or something more easy to listen to Or whatever, you know, because we're going to cut up and combine them Just make up a little thing
4: I'm Simon Adler. This is Mixtape. Before we went to break, after decades of Communist Party operas sprinkled only with the occasional John Denver song, Hao Fang had stumbled upon a trove of cassettes filled with music that neither he nor pretty much anyone else in China had ever had a chance to hear before. And the thing is, he wasn't alone. I mean, rows of rows of rows of tapes. This, again, is Wen Hua Shur, who also encountered one of these stories. You see Bob Dylan. And then you see, no, this is
7: not just one Bob Dylan. That's a 10 Bob Dylan. Whoa, this this is crazy. And wh- where, where were they coming from? Uh, at that time, nobody knows.
9: Mm-hmm. Well, well, I mean, I, I've, tr- I've been trying to confirm that... Um... That very origin of that that very first person who discovered Dako.
4: Again, historian Mabu.
9: And people has been, you know, telling me about this person, um, who they call Professor Ye.
4: What? Professor Ye?
9: Ye. So Ye Ye Laoshi.
4: Ye Laoshi. Yes. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Ye Oh, my
7: God. Even you you heard of this guy. Ye Laoshi.
4: And while we couldn't 100% confirm that he was the first guy, he was certainly one of the first.
9: So this is, uh, I guess, the, mo- the most common version of the story. So Ye Shu. He, he used to be a, a professor or, or at least a lecturer in, in the, uh, Shantou University located in Southeast China. And in the early um, 1990s,
4: Professor Ye took a trip to this nearby town of Heping.
9: Tiny, tiny sort of village in a way, you know,
4: maybe to do some research, maybe on vacation.
9: I don't know why exactly, but somehow he was there.
4: And he got a tip that he should go check out this giant warehouse. Uh, it was actually a recycling center.
9: What we call Liaochang.
4: At that time, China was buying up and importing much of the world's recycling. And this town and warehouse was processing all of the plastics. And looking around at all this plastic, waiting to be ground up into tiny little pellets, he realized...
9: He was standing in a mountain of cassette tapes.
4: I mean, to the left of him, a pile five feet high. To the right, a mound of them ten feet high. There were thousands and thousands of cassettes, each with a cut into it.
9: I mean, of course he would be astonished. Imagining what kind of sounds is in there and thinking... Who is this band? Who is this singer? And he would be dying to hear um, the music in it. Yeah. The point is that those cassettes came in as plastic scrap, and they came in tons.
8: That warehouse made my jaw drop for the sheer number of cassettes in there.
4: This, again, is how Fang who years later took his own trip to Heping to see it.
8: You couldn't possibly con to how many cassettes there were.
7: Millions
4: and millions of tapes, yeah. Ballpark estimates Mabu gave me put it somewhere between 45 and 150 million of them each year. I'm ready. Very good. So Simon, will give you a ring here in a minute. And, uh... Okay, so, so I just walk, I'll hear him coming through my phone, but I'm talking in the microphone, right? That's exactly right. All right. Now, to figure out the origin of these millions and millions of garbage cassettes. Hello? I gave this guy a call. Hello, is this Bill? Yes, it is. Hey, Bill, Simon here from Radio Lab. How are you? I'm good, Simon. How are you? This is Bill nadel Cedar. I covered the recording industry from 1982 to 1989. And he says, back here in the U.S., the late 80s and early 90s were just a period of decadence in the music industry.
7: Oh yeah, yeah, oh my god. The record companies were the cash cow. You were Warner Brothers, your record company was
4: making more money and was more profitable than your than your movie division. They were flush with bands selling millions and millions of records. Like oh, well, R.E.M.
5: went on to sell more than 3 million copies in this You too. The Joshua Tree selling
2: well over 4 million copies and
4: Nirvana, Bon Jovi, Everyone
1: Wet sold 12 and a half million worldwide.
4: So <clears throat> the money was enormous. And so record execs were making big beds, producing millions and millions of copies of just about everything they were releasing. Everything from Madonna to, I don't know, probably even the animated rapping character MC Scat Cat. I mean, they were producing so many that even a hit record often left hundreds of thousands of unsold copies, uh, let alone a flop like MC Scat Cat. And so what did they do with this surplus? They wanted to get rid of it, okay? And so what they would do
7: is they would sell them in bulk for pennies apiece, to a network of buyers and resellers.
4: First, they ended up in record stores labeled as cutouts.
7: You know, a discontinued record is called a cutout
4: uh, because they cut it out of their active sales category. If they didn't sell there, someone would buy them in bulk for pennies on the dollar again, try to sell them somewhere else. Truck stops, car washes, drugstores, and whatever else. And finally, if no one wanted these cassettes... They'd send it out to be destroyed. The standard way they did this was to run a saw blade through them, cutting about an inch deep into the cassette itself, leaving a gash in the plastic and a break in the magnetic tape. And from there, unbeknownst even to Bill... It's getting there in garbage and like big fucking, tra- fucking barges? Trash? Is that what you're saying? I- exact bar- Yes, scrap barges. Wow. These cut-up cutouts were thrown into shipping containers and shipped to China, where Professor Yu found them as these mountains of scrap.
7: I I, I, I take heart from this. <laughs> the music will get to the people no matter what.
4: <laughs> you know? However, for this music to get to the people of China, these cassettes needed to be repaired, which is what Professor Yu tried to do. Here's what we're going to do. Bring the tools out here. Okay. His theory was essentially- Even if the, the mechanism was damaged, and take the tape out. Again, Kaiser Gould.
1: Splice it and rewind it onto a, a new cassette
4: body. It wasn't going to be easy. In fact, it was going to be a royal pain in the ass. Okay, here we go. But, after sawing a John Denver cassette nearly in half. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, and you went right through. You can see we got the tape itself is split. Oh, yeah. My AP and really co-pilot on this series, Eli Cohen, and I also set out to see if we could do this. So, first things first. We're going to have to destroy it further in order to bring it back to life. We had to get the John Denver tape outside messed. of its broken cassette shell. Smashing it with a hammer. Now we've got some breakage, and now it's quite like the experience of a, like cracking open a crab leg or something. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> with the John Denver tape out of its cassette. We've got... Cruise. Eli opened up the cassette we'd be transplanting John Denver into, and we taped the John Denver tape onto the new reel of tape. Yeah. Snipped off the excess. Beautiful. Oh, fuck. Struggled a bit. Damn it. Okay. Well, eventually succeeded. Okay. It's time to uh, sew the patient back up. And screwed the new cassette back together. It looked functional. Yeah, I don't see why it shouldn't play at this point. And so we popped it into my tape player. Big money, no whammies. It doesn't want to move. Didn't work. doesn't. No! Wait, hold on, hold on. We took the tape out and tried to wind uh, it forward manually a bit. Put it back in. No. Still nothing. Doctor, can you diagnose the patient here? Well, it, the the host seems to be rejecting its new organ. And so, I think the problem is the Giving it one more shot, we we manually wound a bunch of tape from the left reel onto the right reel. So we're losing the first song, basically. It might be okay. All right, let's try again. And.
6: Sunshine
9: Woo! on my shoulders makes me happy. We did it. Sunshine <laughs> my eyes.
4: Now, this tedious, painstaking repairing process. Professor Yu and others began doing on a massive scale, hiring folks to do the labor and distribute these tapes across the entire country. And he or someone like him eventually gave these things a name. Daco. Daco. Which just so happens to translate to...
9: Uh, Cut out. We somehow um, also invented this term.
4: And they spread like wildfire. I left China
1: after 89. There weren't Dako at that point. And I came back in 91 and 92, and
9: they were everywhere. Even in cities that are not that big.
4: Far-flung places like Urumuchi in Xinjiang, Dali in Yunnan.
9: Outside of my
7: home, there was a flower shop. And the flower shop was selling Dako. That's how crazy
9: it is. And they were affordable for, for Chinese consumers to buy.
4: And there were so many of these things that the... Chinese government really just had to throw up their hands. And so folks all across China got to have their own little apocalypse-now, this-is-the-end moment. And for Hao Fong, Daco
8: was there when he needed it the most the diversity Dako was able to provide him
4: totally altered his life course. He says without them, he definitely would not have become a music critic.
8: And so what he felt about Dako, if you have to summarize in one word, is gratitude. Without Darko he would not be him today. And how fun thinks all these artists, many of them would not be them either.
4: Because these unregulatable garbage cassettes sparked a musical explosion. And totally reimagined what rock and roll was. This is Li Yang. Today, he's a musician with tattoo sleeves, crawling up each arm. And these doco tapes are what inspired him and countless others to form bands in the first place. Uh, do, we, do we know the name of his first band? I'm not sure he told me that. Um, you know, everybody's embarrassed by the name of their first band, so he probably <laughs> didn't want to tell you the name.
2: <laughs> or... He kept on saying, I can't remember because of, of the life I've lived. That's all I can remember. So, you know, <laughs> I can only imagine.
4: And that's Rebecca Canther, Journalist in Shanghai. Who helped facilitate and uh conduct our interview with him. Anyhow. Come as you
6: are, as your friend, as you... Oh, wow.
4: <laughs> One of the first bands Li Yang heard was Nirvana. And he loved it. He wanted to hear more stuff like it. uh, But he didn't know what genre to be looking for. Mm.
2: No, no idea.
6: In fact,
4: he wasn't even aware there were genres.
2: There was Western music. uh Uh-huh. And there was the music that everyone was listening to in China. Those were the two genres
6: because... Metal. This is punk.
2: Nobody was there to teach us. This is metal, this is punk, this is grunge, this is garage, this is emo. We were just not clear on this in the beginning.
4: All Li Yang had was the recordings, nothing else. And so he was listening to all of this stuff.
1: With no context.
4: Again, Kaiser Guo.
1: No understanding of, you know, what this particular album is in the history of rock.
4: No sense that the Beatles came before ACDC or that ACDC came before Nirvana, certainly no sense of what was quote-unquote good.
9: So, for example, the Beatles and, and Bob Dylan, a lot of people complain about their sound are just, you know, very common sounds. So, wait, so
4: wait, wait. People thought Bob Dylan and the Beatles were underwhelming?
9: <laughs> yeah.
4: And in their place, what folks were drawn to was... God, there were so many, so many obscure bands. For example...
1: this really obscure Finnish symphonic metal band
4: called Sonata Arctica
1: there were a lot of them that were like that Stratovarius get it right (laughs) I think also from Finland Finland was overrepresented here but Cannibal Corpse they're a Floridian death metal band. They're big, sort of. But I started seeing their cassettes all over in China.
4: And for Kaiser, this was all sort of horrifying.
1: You know, I I, I would say, for example, you got to start with the Beatles and the Stones and the Who, and you know, you can't skip because you know, Nirvana doesn't make sense unless you understand what it was in reaction to.
4: Well, and I I totally get that. Like, I studied jazz saxophone for ten years. Really. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that is all about knowing exactly what came before what. Right, right. And knowing who played what lick when and quoting those licks in your solos to demonstrate a knowledge or an understanding of the form. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I don't know. Like, th- there is value in understanding something in its context. Oh, for sure. Yeah. However, Kaiser says. I mean,
1: I I kick myself now for for having done this sort of school of rock
4: uh. Teaching hmm. because he says of what happened next. Mid 2000s, Kaiser's at a music festival in China, and who does he run into but Li Yang and uh, the band he's fronting called
1: Demerit? Demerit the Show. I see these guys, they show up to soundcheck, and they've got, you know, gigantic mohawks, denim jackets, and the spikes on them, Chuck Taylor's.
4: They're dressed like a punk band, uh, which is what Li Yang was going for. He says in hindsight, the stuff he was listening to was
6: hardcore
1: punk. punk rock.
4: But Kaiser notices that under this punk exterior.
1: They're wearing Iron Maiden t shirts. I think that's ironic, right? They're they're kind of making fun of Iron Maiden. Haha. <laughs> that's very funny.
4: Because Iron Maiden is One of the classic heavy metal bands that plays these crazily technical songs with intricate guitar solos. Like punk and metal is just a total musical mismatch. But then later that day when it was demerit's slot to perform
1: They get up and they start playing their songs and they're like a you know punk, major chords.
4: Exactly what Kaiser expected from a punk band.
1: Kind of brash bratty vocals.
4: (laughs) But then, partway through the song.
1: They bust into these dual guitar solos. It's where they're, you know, they're shredding in in tight harmony.
4: It's this chimera of 70s American punk and 80s British metal. And it's like,
1: whoa! I thought in America, there's no punk band that would bother to, you know apply that much technique, and no metal band that would have been okay with that aesthetic, but uh, it was great. And it was like, a, this is a music I could really get into. And, and so I, I talked to them. I, I'm, I'm
4: asking, "So aren't you guys punk?: Like how do you think about these genres that you're blending together?":
1: And so we can do it more, more... they said, "We don't really
6: care about that.. But
2: there was something freeing that he didn't he didn't know what it all was. and so
6: he he didn't
2: have any rules he could just make, make stuff make music mixing everything together oh, the way that he wanted to
4: he was able to make music liberated from its own history or expectations. And all across China, other musicians were doing the same thing, obliviously mixing rock with bebop, with outlaw country, with classical. It was such an
1: odd, completely disembodied borrowing. It was like free of context, free of obligation. It was like taking a plant away from its soil, dusting off any residue of the old soil, and putting it in, in this totally different soil with a different pH level different level of your know, amount of sunlight it's going to grow differently and it did
4: it's sort of the mixtape on uh the grandest of scales exactly exactly
1: <laughs> and and the impact that it had on that generation was just utterly profound <laughs>
6: For him,
2: the the biggest impact of, of Daco cassette was not music. It was about him finding a new way to think about the world.
6: Maybe
2: he didn't know he was searching for it, but when he heard it, he was like,
6: Oh. Yeah. That's me. So
2: Daco, it, it was just... Like a little window. And then, everything came rushing in.
4: Now, what strikes me about all this, more than anything, is that we're all sort of living in this world now. From Spotify playlists that span eras and genres, to the scattershot of news we consume and then weave into our own understanding of what's happened. I mean, our tastes, our beliefs, our realities are a collage. A mixtape of decontextualized and then recontextualized snippets. Next week, we're leaving China and going back to the moment this remixed existence began. We've got the story of the first splice in our reality and the two men, one you definitely know, one who you most definitely don't, who made it happen. Mixtape is reported, produced, scored, and sound designed by me, Simon Adler, with original music throughout by me. Invaluable reporting and production assistance was provided by Eli Cohen. This episode also included original reporting from Noriko Ishigaki, Rebecca Canther, and our amazing anonymous Chinese reporter, I'd like to take a moment to give special thanks to Paul DeGay, Juliette Christensen, Rebecca tours DeBro, Nick Lyons, Michael Bull, Jiro Ishikawa, Haley Zhao, Megan Smalley, and Deanne Toto. This episode would not have come together without each and every one of them. We've got another tape for you next week.
8: Radio Love was created by Jad Abumrad and is edited by Soren Wheeler. Lulu Miller and Latif Nasser are our co-hosts, Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer, and Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Jeremy Bloom, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, W. Harry Fortuna, David Gable, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Sinduniana Sambandam, Matt Kilty, Annie McEwen, Alex Neeson, Sarah Kari, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster with help from Tanya Chabla, Shima Oliai, and Sarah Sandbach. Our fact-checkers are Diane Kelly, Emily Krieger, and Adam Shabill.